Two things before we start looking at uh, finishing up verse 1. I want to remind you again that everything that we look at in this class as we begin looking at the Scripture, always look at it through what? First century eyes or first century glasses or goggles or whatever you want to call it. And um, always keep in mind the overall theme. And the overall theme is we shall overcome. Always keep in mind that it's dealing with people who are dealing with persecution. And also somebody asked me a second thing. Somebody asked me last week about the date of Revelation. And um, most people think it was written around 96 A.D. Uh, there are some people who think different things. Domation reigned from um, <clears throat> Domation reigned from A.D. 81, A.D. 81 to A.D. 96, and so there's some thought about when John actually wrote this book. Did he uh, write it uh, at the very beginning of Domitian's reign? Did he write it in the middle of his reign? Did he write it in the last year of his reign? Did he write it the year after he died? And um, don't know for sure. But we do know that it was written during that time period. And the reason why most people smarter than myself think that is because of the fact of the great person. That was the worst time of persecution uh, that the church experienced. That's even known in secular history. And so it just would fit that the letter of this type would be helpful during that time period. But I want to throw that out to you. I uh, didn't want to leave any impression with anybody that was actually that date it might have been written, because we don't, just don't know for sure. Before we <clears throat> get into verse 1, though, again, any questions or comments? Anything? Anybody like to add? All righty. We pointed out in verse 1 that this is a revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation about Jesus Christ. It was a revelation that was given to Jesus by God. Um, it was a revelation that was given to Jesus by God about things that would shortly come to pass. In fact, it must shortly come to pass. It was emphatic that this was something that would happen soon. And it was, at the very first verse, we discovered that it was a book that was written literally in signals, which means symbols. And that's where we stopped last week. The next thing the verse says is it's by his angel unto his servant John. So Jesus Christ presented... Uh, this information to John by an angel, it says his angel, and we don't know if the his there is Jesus Christ's angel or it's John's angel, and we could debate the thing, but we do know, looking at Old Testament scripture, that oftentimes um, the Bible talks about God talking through an angel of the Lord, and it may be that's what's being talked about here. Uh, even it's interesting, you read the book of Exodus when Moses was standing before the burning bush, it talked about he talked with God, but yet when you get to the New Testament, what does the Bible keep talking about? The book of Hebrews, especially in the first chapter, how did God talk to man? He talked through angels. And we have, of course, example of, of many times in the Old Testament of a, a, an angel of the Lord appearing before Abraham. You have the angel of the Lord appearing before Joshua. And um, some people think that's the reincarnated Christ. Maybe, don't know, or the pre-incarnated Christ. Maybe, may not. But um, whatever, we have a messenger who is an intermediator as far as the message that John received from Jesus Christ that came from God. Okay? And that's basically what we learned in verse 1. That this is a revelation from Jesus given to him by God. Uh, things come to pass 
must come shortly come to pass. This is a book of symbols. There's an angel involved. And the last thing the verse says, it was given to his servant, John. And who's John? John the Apostle. Now, how, how do, do what? Son of Zebedee. Okay. And history tells us that he was on the Isle of Patmos at this time. And most people think this is the Apostle John without a doubt because of what we have in verse 2. Believe it or not, he identifies who, which, who this John is by what he says in verse 2. I'm going to read verse 2 to you, and you tell me why this identifies him as the Apostle John. Verse 2 says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Now, why is that an identification badge that this is the Apostle John? Well, if you read, if you read the Bible record, and here's the thing that's interesting by this. By the time John wrote this book, the rest of the New Testament had been written. The Gospel of John had been written. First, second, and third John had been written. Look at that verse and see if you don't see something that makes you automatically, I read this verse and I automatically think, man, even if I didn't know the name of the guy, I know who the name of the guy is. I just was written in verse 2. For example, who bear record of the Word of God, John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's John. What's John say here? Look at, I'll tell you what, somebody turn to the first chapter of First John and read the first four verses. Stop at three, by the way. I'll go to four. Just read through three. Now, does that sound anything at all like verse 2? Sounds an awful lot like it, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's what um, John is saying, both in the fact that um, what he says in First John that Jeremy read for us, and what he says in the Gospel of John there at the beginning. But he makes sure that people understand that what he is going to be talking about, they can take to the bank. Because the revelation of Jesus that's being talked about in verse 1 is being written about somebody who knew Jesus. That's what Julie's grabbed. Not only did he know Jesus, he could attest to the fact that he could um, be a witness in it. He could bear record. In other words, he could be a legal witness to the fact that this man actually was alive and he did the things that he did and that this is the same apostle that's writing that, so he's got authority there. But there's also something else he's doing when he says this. Put those glasses on. What is he doing at the very beginning of this? What doubt is he dealing with or helping with? What, Jeff? All right, two things. First of all, he's, he's making sure everybody knows that the things he's going to be telling us, that's the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was a real man. Some of these people that are living now in A.D. 96, remember Jesus died in A.D. 33, some of these people... I've heard about Jesus. They live in an area where Jesus never visited. All they have is faith. John is dealing with Christians who are being persecuted or who are being asked to deny their faith. He begins at the very beginning, let me tell you something, Jesus is real. And the things I'm about to tell you are real because they're coming from Jesus who was real. So at the very beginning he's saying, don't you doubt about what I'm about to tell you. Make sure you understand and appreciate the fact that 
John, I'm the one who bear record of the word of God. Talking about, not the scripture, but talking about evidently Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ said. I'm a testimony of that. And all the things that I saw, in other words, the things that he saw Jesus do, and the things he saw in these symbols he's going to see. So he has a dual full purpose here, but he wants at the very beginning to make sure you understand and appreciate the fact that this is real. This is not something I dreamed about. This is not from somebody who is some mythical uh, person. Real person, real message. Listen to what I'm about to say. And what does he say in the next verse? Listen to what I got to say. But he puts it like this in verse 3. He says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. He begins the verse off by saying, blessed. Now, blessed in the New Testament makes you think of what, Roger? Happy because it's a part of the... I figured you'd be there because you did those lessons on that. Well, here's the first of seven Beatitudes you have in the book of Revelation. You have seven different ones, and they all start with blessed. And um, we also... See here at the very beginning that here is something that's a part of seven. Seven is a big number in the book of Revelation. In fact, right here in this first chapter, we're going to have five sets of seven. Okay? And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I think it's not by accident if you're going to have beatitudes in the book of Revelation, there's going to be seven of them. Here we see the first of them. And he says, blessed or happy is the one, is he that readeth. Now, who is the he that readeth? Us. First century Christians. All right, so is he saying something stupid when he says, or makes no sense when he says, he that readeth and they that hear? Is he being redundant, or is he talking about two different things? Yes, Jeremy. That's right, not everybody could read. Is that what you're going to say, Michael? Okay. And, and that's the case, too. We've got to act on what we hear. You know, James says, you know, somebody that hears the word of law and then just forgets what he hears like a man who looks in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. But Jeremy's on to something here. They had readers back then. When someone received an epistle, uh, someone received, uh, say, a book of the gospel or the book of Acts, you know, first of all, it was hard to have copies of things. If you wanted a copy of something, you had to spend the time handwriting out that copy. So they didn't say, hey, somebody bring me 100 copies of this so we can hand it out to the church and the church can read it and they can take it home with them. Mm-mm, that's not the way it worked. Uh, they would have a reader who would receive the letter and he would read it for the entire congregation. Okay? So more than likely, it's talking about the person that's being blessed. There's three, there's three different groups of people being blessed here. The first group is the people who do the reading of it. And so we're talking about public reading. Now, we have scripture reading in our service today. But folks, it's nothing like the scripture reading they used to have. Especially in the Old Testament, even in the synagogue. Sometimes in the synagogue, they'd read the whole entire book of Isaiah as a part of their service. Why? Because so many people didn't have access to the scrolls that were there in the synagogue that were opened up, and then they would read them to them. If they were going to listen to the Word of God, they couldn't go home and read their Bibles. They got it in the synagogue or they got it in the temple or the tabernacle. And so 
you know, we get, sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll say, now listen, we got long passages I'm going to read. Don't let your mind wander, because I know how easy it is to do. Well, sometimes people back then would sit for a solid hour just listening to Scripture being read. And that's more than likely what's going on here that John is saying. We're going to bless the one who reads it to you. When you get this letter, this revelation, and the one who reads it to the congregation, he's going to be blessed. He's going to be happy. Well, why is he going to be happy? Well, he's reading some exciting news to these people who are being persecuted. He's telling them some news that he wants them to hear. And, and so he gets the privilege of being the one that transmits the words of John that came by an angel. That's a revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him by God. We all thought about Scripture that way. Oh, man, when somebody read the Scripture, we thought about, man, this comes from God. I need to listen to it. But in our day and age, we have um, attention problems. And if the Scripture reading is more than five verses, we kind of start thinking about something else or check our phone or whatever. But back then, they had people who read. And so there's a blessing on the one who reads. And then the text goes on and says, And they that hear the words. So those who heard the reader read, they were blessed also. Why? Because they're getting information about how to deal with this particular uh, adversary that they're dealing with. And um, it says, Hear the words of this prophecy. Now, You've heard me say this so many times before, but let me repeat it again in case someone is here who hadn't heard me say this. We often hear about the word prophecy and we think about the future. But prophecy in the Bible is not always about the future. What is prophecy in the Bible? It's the teaching. In the um, Old Testament, you had prophets who oftentimes talked about the future, but there were some prophets who said nothing about the future but they were prophets because they spoke the word of God. One of the spiritual gifts that you learn about in the New Testament that was imparted by the Holy Spirit was the gift of prophecy. That gift wasn't to tell the future. That gift was to tell the word of God. And so, though there are some things that are going to be talking about that's going to happen in the short time future here, keep in mind that the word prophecy here can simply mean the word of God. So you've got somebody being blessed who reads it, somebody who hears it, and then finally it says, and keep those things which are written there. Um, some translations have take heed, obey. The actual Greek there is the word more closely to take heed, but it fits the same way. If you're going to take heed to something, you're going to do what it says. If you're going to keep something, you're going to do what it says. What? But this book be telling you to do that, you need, that you're doing what it says. You get to the very end of this book. What does it tell you you need to do? What command are you obeying? When you finish this book, from what we know already, what command are you going to obey if you're going to keep the readings of this? That's, they, you've heard it read. Now you're going to keep it. What are you going to be doing? Not lose faith. That's it. You're going to hang on. As chapter 2 and verse 10 says, be faithful unto death. And the death that's being talked about there is not being faithful your entire life. It means being faithful at the point of death. In other words, if you're about to be put to death because you won't obey Caesar and bow down to him, or you're being put to death just simply because you're a Christian, and there were people who were being fed to the lines, burned at the stake, uh, tore in half, 
all kinds of things happening to them because they were Christians. If you do not give up the faith even at the point of death, then you've obeyed what this book is all about. If you've not given up being a Christian, then you've taken heed to the words that we find in this book. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of it. Yeah, that's absolutely a part of it. But in this particular setting, and this is what they're dealing with here, is they're being put to death for their faith. Oh, absolutely. Being faithful uh, until the day that we die is just as important. But here they're dealing with a real-life situation that because of their Christianity, they're going to be put to death. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. No, faithfulness is talked about in so many other places in the Bible. Um, and obviously, the idea here is if you live to be 110 years old during the first century, then you still have to be faithful. But they were dealing with the immediate there and now. They had a decision every single day when they got out of bed. Is the day the day I'm going to quit being a Christian because they're going to take my family away from me? Is the day the day I'm going to quit being a Christian because they're going to take my job away from me? Is the day the day I'm going to quit being a Christian because they're going to take my house away from me? It's the day of the day I'm going to quit being a Christian because they're going to cut my head off. That's the thing they were dealing with. Um, we deal with faithfulness, but we don't deal it in that dramatic every single day. What am I going to do? And if we look at this book in that kind of mindset, you realize what this book means to them. In fact, um, we'll see it here in just a few minutes about uh, Jesus being a faithful witness. And, and that ties into the very thing that I just talked about. But notice what else it says in the verse, verse uh, 3. It says, which are written therein. Here's the reason why you're happy. The one that reads it or blessed. The one that hears it is blessed. The one that keeps it is blessed because the time is at hand. Um, the Greek word for at hand is eggus, E-G-G-U-S, and it means soon. And we see a good example of how we can tell exactly what this means. By um, Somebody read Mark 1.15 for me. Here we find the exact same Greek word. And John knows exactly what the word soon means. It doesn't mean thousands and thousands of years in the future. All right. The time is here. And then her version uses the word near. For the Greek word agus there, King James uses the word at hand again in that particular verse. Um, in fact, good exercise here. Uh, somebody that has a different translation from the King James, and since you just read, 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 read Revelation 1, 1 through 4 in the NIV, and then I want to hear some other translations. And I want you to notice in all these translations, what is the flavor? The flavor is this is going to be something that's happening right away. All right? Somebody else from a di uh, read verses one and four. I'm, we're going to get behind. We read all four. Read verse one and verse three. I mean, that's the time is near. It's interesting. Your translation says the one who reads it to the church. Of course, the translation you're using is a paraphrase, and he just added that in as a paraphrase. But it is a very clear meaning in that particular verse uh, because it's not in the text. It doesn't say to the church, huh? No, it's not wrong in the sense it's giving you the sense in the church is not in the original text, but. What I just explained is meant in the original text, and so the person who is doing the paraphrase there is adding that, he's amplified it by saying, well, this is a regular reads in the church, not just someone who reads. Does that make sense? 
In other words, it's not in the Greek. You can't say in the church in the Greek, but the sense is there, and that's what we just got through talking about. Read aloud. Okay. All right. Uh, what is yours? What translation do you have? Okay. What does it say as far as the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 3? Okay. My point is, you can go look. Every single translation that you can come up with, even a paraphrase, uses the idea of this is something immediate. And, um, and I know the one who wrote, the, who translated the paraphrase that, that she is using is premillennialist, but yet he still translates it that way. So anyway, I just want to make sure we understand these are things that would be reassuring to someone because it's something that's going to take place soon. This will give you hope. This will cause you to hang on, as we've already talked about. But any questions or comments before I leave that? There's the idea of the fact that the Lord is near, but we don't know if that means the fact that he means that he's always with us or he means that his time is coming soon. Uh, there's the verse, I can't remember off the top of my head, the exact uh, verse and chapter, but where he says, um, talking about today is the day of salvation and that the implication is because the time is near. Well, that could mean the idea that the time of your death is near because one day we're going to die or could it mean the Lord's return? I don't know. I have to go and look. I don't know. I don't know if the word, I don't know if the word egus is there. I'm sorry. I, mean, I, can, I can look for it. I just don't know. All right. All right, verse 4 says, John... Once again, he's emphasizing this is me, and this is where the prophecy is going to begin. This is actually the beginning of the letter. If we look at it, this first three verses are like the preface to the letter. Now here's where the letter begins, if we're talking about in letter form. He says, John is the author. Who is it written to? The seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. All right, a lot going on here. We might not get past this verse. We'll see. We've already established who John is. The next thing we need to establish is you know, these seven churches. Why seven churches? There were more than seven churches at this time. Why did he pick these seven churches? And the seven churches are named in chapter 2 through 3, so we know these churches had names. Michael, do you have your hand up? Okay. All right. Very good point, and we'll amplify on that in just a minute. Yes, Jeremy. All right, like I said earlier, in this chapter, we have five sets of seven, okay? Here we have a set of seven churches. What are you going to say, Julie? Very good. All right, let's just kind of take everything that we've heard so far. First of all, this may be a symbolic number. And these churches, though they are real churches, we know these are real churches, they still were symbolic for all the churches, okay? So there's some symbolism going on in that way, perhaps. It may be, as Julie says, and she's not the only one that says this, that this was a, these seven churches represented every single Christian that was in a church anywhere. Because if you look at these seven churches, you'll find Christians who were lukewarm. You'll find Christians who were falling away. You find Christians who were involved in material things more than they were in spiritual things. You found Christians who were steadfast and would not give up. In other words, you have a representation of every single person that's in every church. And it may be that the things that are being talked about in these churches, once again, are symbols of uh, they were just used as the instrument 
to portray this particular type of Christian, and it may be the problems in that particular church weren't that church's real problems. That church was just used as the identifier for something that applied to everybody. Because in most churches, there's a mixture of every kind of Christian. And I would dare say that if you read about one church and the whole church talked about um, you were lukewarm, you think every single person in that church was lukewarm? Well, there's probably some that were warmer than others and some that were colder than others. Um, so this might just be a simple representation of all the members, and they picked seven for the purpose of, of symbolism. You know, seven is a number, as Jeremy's already mentioned, that means completeness or that which is perfect. Uh, the Jews were into numerology. The ancient Greece world was in, into numerology, and different numbers meant different things to them. They were superstitious about it but we have good authority that the number seven meant complete. Uh, complete. And so this may be just a uh, pick seven because that's a complete number. He could have picked six, but people would say, well, that's kind of incomplete. He could pick more than eight, and they said, no, that's too much. But seven was perfect, and therefore he picked seven churches. Um, there are some people who believe that, looking back at history, that these seven churches were located in seven cities, that were the postal district for that part of the world. And so if you were going to distribute information to people, where would you send the information? Well, you probably wouldn't send it to Indian Trail in our little post office over here. You sent it to the main post office over in Charlotte. And so these cities that were picked and the churches that were picked were picked because they knew that the information would be spread out because they were hubs for the information. They had the availability of getting the mail out, like Pony Express and that type of thing. Um, there are some people who believe that, um, this is what Mike alluded to, that the persecution was worse in this area than any other area in the church. That this basin where these seven churches were in Asia, uh, the persecution was the worst because the emperor worship was the strongest. And there is some evidence that emperor worship was stronger in this area than everywhere, anywhere else. And maybe it was sent to these seven churches because this was the stronghold of the church at this time. These were the strongest churches there were. And if you, if you want somebody to take the lead as far as be, being faithful, send it to the strong churches so they can preach it to the weaker churches. Uh, they would receive it and be able to do something with it, whereas the weaker churches might not be able to do anything with it. We don't know for sure, um, but he picked seven churches. Now, I want to clear up one little thing here in verse 4 that sometimes confuses people. John, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, we think Asia, what do we think of? What's that? China? We think of Asia today. We think of Asia peop Asian people. We think of Chinese. We think of Japanese. We think of Korean, Vietnamese. This is not what it's being talked about. To that particular part of the world at that time, um, Asia was known as the southern part of Europe where Turkey is now. Okay? So this is more of an Arabic-type country than it is what we might, and I, I'm not supposed to use this term evidently because it's degrading, but I don't know why, Oriental, okay? Um, this is more Arabic than it is Oriental. It's, it has nothing to do with, with uh, what we think of Southeast Asia or Asia where China is, but this is a land around Turkey that these churches are located in. But then he says something that's uh, astounding, and something that's very important for these people to hear. He's saying, I'm writing this letter to you. 
And here's who I'm writing to. And as is custom with letters, he gives the Greek greeting and he gives the Jewish greeting. He says, charis, which is grace. He says, shalom, which is peace. But he says this greeting of grace and peace doesn't come directly from him. It comes from somebody else. Who does it come from? It comes from him which is and which was and which is to come. Who in the world is that? God. God is being talked about here. In fact, it's interesting where it says him which is is the Greek equivalent to the very thing that God told Moses in Hebrew in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 14, I think it's right around there, where he says, well, who do I say sent me? What does God answer? I am. That's the exact same thing we got here in the first part of this. So he's saying from I am and which was and which is to come. What is he what is he driving there by describing God this way? Well, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit here in a minute. But what is it about God that makes him which is, which was, and which is to come? Eternal. God has always existed. In fact, well, you've heard me talk about this before. If there ever was a time that God wouldn't exist, didn't exist, what happens? He's not God because something else had to create him. And that person is God or that thing is God. God has to be eternal to be God, and that's the point that that um, John is placing here. He's emphasizing God's eternality. God has always been. There's never been a time when God hadn't existed. Now his point, he's, as he begins this thing, he's wanting them to think about the fact that kingdoms on this earth come and go. Rome's the king right now. Emperor Caesar is in charge right now. But if people remember their Old Testament history, it's not always going to be there. Before Rome, there was Greece. It was the world power. It's not there anymore. Before that, it was the Medo-Persians. They're not there anymore. And before that, there was the Babylonians, the first great world empire. And go before that, maybe Egypt. The world's constantly changing. Kingdom, kingdoms are constantly being built up and falling down. You hang on. Rome will end, but God never ends. He is eternal. He is always there. He is going to be on your side no matter what. And so John's beginning this letter, and he's going to talk about God. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And he's going to talk about Jesus. And he's sending us grace and peace from all three of these. Imagine getting a greeting from God. Um, there's a new television show that's supposed to start this fall. I saw something, a little blurb about it. And... God evidently friends somebody on Facebook and starts sending him Facebook messages. And that's what the whole TV show's about. And I don't know if it's going to be any good or not, but I just happened to see something about it. Well, here we got God sending us a greeting in this letter. John's writing the letter, but the greeting that John's sending out, which is very typical of beginning of letters, we saw this with Paul's epistles, the greetings are coming from God. If God wishes you grace, boy, that means something. Because God's grace is amazing. If God wishes you peace, that's peace that passeth understanding. And think about what that meant to these people that were hearing this letter. God's grace, he's going to stick with me. That's an unmerited favor. I'm going to find peace. And so 
God sends these greetings, and then the text goes on and says, and from, saying grace and peace, not only coming from God, but it's coming from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So who in the world are these seven spirits? Is it sleepy, dopey, doc? Who are are these seven spirits? And why in the world did it say that? Well, we know for pretty good that what's being talked about here is the Holy Spirit because this is the only thing that fits because you got God, you got Jesus, and it's talking about the Trinity. So it would fit that the Holy Spirit's right here. And we'll talk about why he used Jesus last in just a moment. So it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Why would he refer to him as the King James says? There are different translations have different things. Um, some translations have sevenfold spirits. But King James says seven spirits which are before the throne. Why seven spirits? All right. Now why would he emphasize that the Holy Spirit would be a perfect spirit? What's another name for the Holy Spirit? Holy Ghost. What does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit as? The Comforter. These are some people that need some comfort, right? So he's emphasizing where does perfect comfort come from? The Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to deal with it tonight because we could spend a whole week on this. But the Scriptures come from the Holy Spirit. Where do we get comfort from? The Scriptures. Um, The one that can plead before God when we don't know what to say when we're praying. Who, Who is that? The Holy Spirit. He's emphasizing the fact you've got something there on earth with you. God's in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. But there's somebody with you right now that's a part of the Godhead. And it's the Holy Spirit. And he's the ultimate comforter. He's the perfect comforter for people who need comfort. Now, it's interesting. There may be another reason why he picked the word seven here. And if these people had a knowledge of the Old Testament... They might remember this verse. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. And even, I'm not going to have anybody read it. I'm going to read it myself. But I would wish everybody would turn over there if you would. Hold your marker there at at Revelation. But look at at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I don't know what I told you. I have to tell you verse 2. Okay. Now, don't you notice something that's kind of neat here? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now count that up. There are seven there. And so it may be that he wants them to understand and appreciate this comforter, this perfect Holy Spirit, is going to give them the wisdom they need, He's going to give them the understanding that they need. He's going to give them the counsel that they need. He's going to give them the fortitude that they need. And they're going to give them the knowledge that he needs. And they're going to give him the respect of the Lord that he needs. Maybe that's why he used the word seven. I don't think that's just a coincidence. It may have been. Yes, Fred. Absolutely. Everything they need is right here in this Holy Spirit. So I'm saying he's he's the perfect comforter. Good point. And um, also it's emphasized that this seven spirit or the Holy Spirit, where is this Holy Spirit? Where is it? 
What's the text say? Before the throne. Why do you think it's before the throne? That's where God is, and what is that Holy Spirit doing for these people? Interceding. There you go. All right. Now, we get to verse 5, which is a continuation of the greeting. You've got grace and peace from God, grace and peace from the Comforter, the perfect spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Oh, man, our time is up. What happened? Y'all got to quit doing that. All right, we'll say verse 5 for next week, and we'll continue that greeting then because I, I don't have time of even. You won't believe how much is in this verse. We could spend the whole class maybe on this one verse. But anyway, thank you for your attention and your comments.